Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to another episode of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Well, the red flag indicators are either physical characteristics or behaviors. It's important to note that some of these victims who are labor and sex trafficking victims may share the same type of physical characteristics and behaviors. As far as the touchless side of that went, that really helped the, the security and surveillance departments, um, uh, you know, enhanced our ability to know who was on our property, the bad guys, so to speak, that were here to cause trouble. And we saw 300 new IP addresses and nobody knew what they were. And eventually it turned out that it was uh, the toilets in the building because those toilets were actually connected to the internet so that the provider could actually understand how many flashes and, and, uh, uh, and uh, how well it was working in terms of uh, water consumption. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Dr. Lauren Shapiro is an Associate Professor in the Security, Fire and Emergency Management Department at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She is also the co-author of the Encyclopedia of Security and Emergency Management. Dr. Shapiro, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hello, thank you for having me. Today's topic is training security guards to identify victims of human trafficking. Let's start with something I think most people are really gonna be surprised about, how recent the law has changed in this. We had the Mann Act way back in the day, but since then, we've really not updated our human trafficking laws until just recently. That's correct. It was only in 2000 that they criminalized human trafficking for both labor and sex with the passage of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which is also called TVPA. Lauren, let's talk about government agencies, NGOs, non-government organizations, how they're partnering to get ahead of this. I, I, I just hear what you said, and I think I'm a business in a mall, and I'm the owner, and if I saw a 12-year-old coming in to buy lingerie, I'm going to pick up the phone and call the police, but I guess that's not happening as much as it should. So let's talk about those partnerships and how some of these businesses could, could be liable for not acting in these cases. That's a good point. Originally, when the Trafficking Victims Protection Act came out in 2000, their goals were mainly on prevention, protection, and prosecution of human trafficking. But then in 2009, there was a reauthorization that incorporated partnership. The Department of Homeland Security has formed a multidisciplinary task force that has government agencies, non-government agencies, and businesses all working together to help trafficking victims, make sure the public's aware, helping them with training. It's part of all of our duty to help these trafficking victims. And unless we do, it's never going to stop. In addition, there was a recent case in which a hotel was held criminally liable in a federal case for sex trafficking. And any business could fall victim to that as well. You need to be aware that you are criminally liable if you are facilitating trafficking and you can facilitate it in a variety of ways. One may be that you are profiting from the victim. So if the victim is purchasing clothing in your store that's used for the crime of sex trafficking, then you are 
facilitating the abuse, and therefore you could be held accountable. Now, I, uh, one of my other lives, I ran two guard companies and hired 3,000 guards, and I had a lot of people under me working at various posts in schools, in retail, in shopping malls, all kinds of places where we can recognize human trafficking if we're trained properly. And I will say, sadly, I was not aware of this issue 20 years ago, and I didn't train my guards for this. I kind of wish I had. Let's talk about the places most likely for guards to find signs of human trafficking and uh, and help help identify it. Well, I certainly think that the mall is an excellent ground for detecting human trafficking. First, because there's so many different types of businesses in which you would find either the labor trafficking victims because they're working in the businesses or because the sex trafficking victims are coming through in order to buy some kind of supply an outfit or whatever else they need. Lauren, let's break down the different sort of people involved as victims in human trafficking. I think people understand the sex part of it, but there's many more people involved as victims here doing different things. That's true. So it depends on what the business is. It could be that they're in a business, for example, in the mall working in a restaurant. Maybe they're working in a beauty salon. The job of the security officer is to observe these people to make a determination if this is someone who is potentially a victim. And there are different ways that you can do it. And I have created a list that would help you to figure out if someone, for example, is a labor trafficking victim. But there are some people who are actually both labor trafficking victims and sex trafficking victims depending on the venue. So for example, if it's a cantina, some of these victims not only are serving, let's say, as a waitress, but also may be forced to be involved in sex acts. So I've broken it down to red flag indicators that a security guard would be able to observe and make a judgment as to whether or not this person potentially is a victim, definitely a victim, or is not a victim. And then from there, they can write a report or contact law enforcement in order to carry out further. Lauren, let's hear about some of those red flag indicators that are gonna help people identify this. So let me start with labor and sex trafficking victims may show injuries that are bruises, may have broken bones. They might have rings around their arm that show that they had been confined or constrained in some way. They also seem to be malnourished. They don't have good hygiene. They're sleep deprived. They might have illnesses that haven't been treated. And they seem to be dressed inappropriately for the weather. In terms of their behaviors, the labor and sex trafficking victims are closely monitored by whomever is accompanying them. They're not able to just go freely from one place to another. So even if they were, for example, in a store with clothing, they can't simply go from one rack to another. The other person is literally right by their side, sticking like glue. They might also, if you see them, avoid eye contact. They won't look up, they won't look at you, they don't interact with anyone else, they hardly interact with whoever's with them. 
especially if it's a teenager, it seems like it's a, a pretty clear indicator that something's off because you don't see teens not doing that. They also might show signs of being afraid, they're anxious, nervous, and they might not be able to talk at all or somebody with them is verbally berating them and they don't have any personal possessions, control of their money, ID, only use cash. So those are very simple ways for someone to make that observation. For the sex trafficking victims, some of the characteristics you can observe would include their clothing is very sexualized and inappropriate for their age. Branding, that is very key. Some of them have brands or tattoos that seem to indicate money, money bags, property of. That's a clear sign that they're being trafficked um, for sex. And they might also share that tattoo with the other person they're with. In terms of their behaviors, how they're acting, they're purchasing clothes and shoes that seem to be for older people. They might be buying lingerie, but they're 12 years old. That's a, a clear warning. They also purchase things related to sex and pregnancy, such as condoms, lubricants, pregnancy tests, but they're not just buying one, they're buying a whole bunch of them. They're also picking up prescriptions for sexually transmitted disease and infection. They might be traveling with others who are clearly not related to them. There also may be discussions that seem very strange, but are actually related to the sex trade. So they might say words like trick or lizard or stable. And those are terms that are used relating to being prostituted. Finally, you have some physical characteristics that the labor trafficking victim would display. And that would be low quality clothing, at least in comparison to the person they're with who seems to be controlling them or others in the group. And it could be of the wrong size. In terms of their behaviors, there's a video camera security in place, for example, in the kitchen beamed right on them. They don't seem to have a stable living situation. And we can tell that mainly from how tired they are and how they seem to be stumbling around, they don't seem to leave. Um, they might be working really long hours. So let's say you're a security guard and you go into the kitchen of the restaurant at the mall and you got on at 10 o'clock in the morning and this person was already there. You get off at six o'clock and this person is still working. So that's a very, very long, set of hours. And you might notice that there's some sleeping bag in the back and that may be where they're staying. Now let's get to the meat and potatoes here. Let's talk about human trafficking awareness and detection training. Tell me how our security forces can, can learn to identify this and really help these victims. This is a little harder to do, but because security guards have been trained to be good observers, that's their strength and that's what they should do. They should never attempt to speak to someone they think is a victim because it could endanger the victim and perhaps also the guard. But they're unlikely as a victim to say something to a stranger that they might be in a dire situation. 
when they're in the presence of any type of controller, whether it's the head trafficker or perhaps it might be a different type of controller, such as someone who makes sure the person is dressed in a certain way for a sex act job, or it could be one of the other victims who is also trusted by the trafficker. You don't really have a sense of them being free to do and say what they want. That's the clue that you would get when you observe them. Something seems off. And that's what you're going to need to do is to look at some of these red flag items, indicators, to determine if this is someone who may be in a victim situation. Dr. Lauren Shapiro, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. This has been incredibly helpful and insightful, and I know our security guard forces are really going to be able to use this information. We've been speaking about training security guards to identify human trafficking victims. Anytime you want to come back on the show and talk about it, let's keep this conversation going because I think this is one of the most important things humanity has to address right now. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Mr. Dirk Boss, CFE, CPP, CSP is a gaming security and surveillance expert and a litigation support expert witness. Mr. Dirk Boss, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, first off, I'm going to say you have a very cool name. That is an awesomely cool name, Dirk Boss. I mean, it can't get any better, especially working in the casino business. I'm sure that name does help kind of bring your creds to the table. Today, we're going to talk about uh, security devices in casinos and specifically how COVID has changed their use, interaction, perhaps there's some touchless devices that are out there now. Tell us what's going on. How has COVID really impacted your job when it comes to physical security devices? Well, I think uh, the first thing that we saw when we went to COVID, of course, was the, um, you know, the, the devices that we could use to uh, check temperatures. You know, that was, as you, you know, <clears throat> you know, that was the first symptom of COVID-19 that you could you know, it was recommended that you check for that that would be something that might signify that somebody, you know, had it, but, you know, was infected and was contagious and could pass it on. Um, so that was, you know, the first thing that we went with, um, which is, you know, a little bit of a struggle right at the uh, the beginning, you know, uh, initially, <clears throat> you know, the cameras and the equipment that did that were, you know, very few and far between and everybody wanted them all at once. So I think all of us, uh, you know, struggled for that very quickly. A lot of uh, handheld devices were were used. Um, but, you know, that <clears throat> industry, you know, caught up with that pretty quickly and, you know, was able to put that together. So um, almost all casinos that I'm aware of went to where we had checkpoints, you know, at our entrances. So the first thing we, we ended up doing was, you know, limiting the number of entrances into the, the casino and which is a, in the hotel, which is a huge deal for us because, you know, we, you know, our casinos are anywhere are built on, Hey, we want people in here, come in any way you want and, you know, just get here, right. You know, just get here and, and have fun and gamble that type of thing. So going to choke points, so to speak, and restricting entry was uh, or restricting access was a, uh, was a big deal for us. Um, so that, you know, that caused, uh, 
a number of things to happen, you know, some good, some bad, you know, first, uh, you know, the negative side was, you know, restricted access and, you know, allowed some lines to form, at least initially, you know, people waiting to get in and, you know, getting upset while they got, you know, waited to get their temperature checked and things like that. So, uh, but we rapidly got better at it. Um, the, the good thing, was that you know we were able to see everybody coming coming in and because it was a, a choke point uh where you know someone had to go through in a certain manner and their their movements were restricted it, it allowed us um to get a very good facial shot of that person that we otherwise normally would not have without you know human intervention so as far as the touchless side of that went that really helped the, the security and surveillance departments, uh, uh, you know, enhanced our ability to know who was on our property, the bad guys, so to speak, that were here to cause trouble, you know, take a ticket or, you know, take anything that's not, you know, nailed down or, you know, whether they're a card counter or a cheater or that type of thing, uh, really allowed us that opportunity to, to do that. Um, you know, because everybody was wearing masks, you know, at that point in time throughout the COVID season, you know, we require that you at least drop it for, you know, uh, a period of time. So, again, we can get a face shot. And uh, we are also using devices to scan IDs, you know, because because of the contact tracing, should someone get on the property who, you know, later turned out to be positive, um, we would have had to have the ability to track them back to be able to say, you know, they were on the property at this time and they contacted, they had contact with these people, these employees, you know, that type of thing. So again, on a positive side, you know, IDing people and having their their photos uh, or video of them uh, is was incredible for the security teams. I mean, that, that was, we knew, we know, we knew at the time who was on our property at, at any given time, which um, as most of folks in the security arena know that that's, uh, you know, that that's a good thing. I mean, if you know who's here, you know who did what. That's what it comes down to. So that was our first uh, th thing, I believe, with the um, touchless device that really helped us uh, was a negative, but turned into a positive. Is the video technology there? that allows us to recognize things like temperatures, right? So are there some infrared cameras that say, listen, that guy's got a temperature of 105. I don't have to have contact with him. I don't have to take his temperature. I can just say, sir, would you come over here and let's let's talk to you before you come into the casino? Uh, yes, there are. Um, I mean, they're getting better every day. Uh, as I mentioned initially, when we this first happened, when COVID first came, you know, first was recognized, um, we didn't have all this equipment yet because we had, never had a need. Um, but since that time, I mean, the industry and, um, you know, has developed um, the applications and the, the um, equipment that we need because it, it now was important. And so you can you can really buy whatever or put in place whatever you, you need um, to do those types of things. Um, of course, as we've gone on, we've we've learned that temperature, you know, checking a temperature isn't really um, an effective way of knowing if someone's positive or not. You know, we've learned that. 
And so that's not as important anymore. Um, you know, so um, it's always a learning experience, you know, of, of what we can do. But whatever the equipment uh, manufacturers and our integrators, you know, for surveillance and security, they're very quick to respond to those those needs. And um, the, the products are out there now. And I, I think it's just the start of things to come. I, I think we've we've realized that there's a lot of technology that can help us in our physical security and, and surveillance of, of our properties in whatever industry it is. I mean, it's definitely opened up a whole new thought process for myself. Dirk, what about uh, keyless entry? Is that uh, come of age? Is that technology available and working well? Yeah, you know, actually it's, um, it's here. Um, we just went through that on our, our particular property um, where we installed the keyless entry. You know, it's, it's what people are, are looking for, you know, when they come into, well, you know, any public place, um, you know, such as, a, well, you know, a casino, a bus station, you know, a restaurant or whatever. I mean, the less people can touch things, I, I think, is, is a good thing. I mean, we have in the restaurants, as you know, people are getting the Q code, QR codes, you know, and getting the menus and all that stuff. That that works very well. So, you know, we one of our uh, plans, actually, even, I think even before COVID, was to put in the, the keyless entry. Um, and actually, you can check in. Um, our executive team um, actually was involved with, you know, testing that, you know, with through the hotel, and you know, we were able to, you know, um, use our cell phones to to check in um, and have everything ready, and and just essentially, it's on on your your cell phone, which everybody has now, right? Everybody has a smartphone, and uh, so you know, once you're you get you get to the hotel front desk, you've already checked in. They're just going to take some basic information, and there's no key. You just you go, you know, and like in our case, for example, you have to um, show your key or uh, device to get the elevator to move. You know, you have to, you know, display that so it can be picked up on a touch system and then the elevator will move you to your floor um, and then you use the same device, the same phone, the same system to get into your room. Very popular, um, makes it easy, um, had very, very few if any problems, I, I haven't heard of one uh, actually at all. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, um, a lot of movement in that direction. And again, I mess, you know, mentioned the restaurants and, you know, the QR codes and um, people are, are looking for that nowadays to, to be safe. And, um, and I think we can all understand that. I, I think we're going to continue to see that trend as we move along. Some of the other touchless systems now are where um, a number of casinos are requiring that you do walk through whatever the device might be. It could be a metal detector. It could, you know, it could be a camera type system that's looking for, you know, metal, you know, that type of thing. I mean, they have some interesting things out there um, that, you know, apparently from what we can see work very well. So we can see or we'll be able to see if, if you have a weapon on you know, on your person and decide what to do about it at that point in time. So the days of the, uh, the magnetic wand and the path down are, are moving towards touchless devices. Yes, they are. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's uh, something that is moving very, very quickly. So I, I don't think we've seen the end of it whatsoever. I mean, for example, you know, in our, our machines, our slot machines, I mean, 
Um, you know, we're, you know, looking at things where um, people can put in their phone numbers, you know, at some point be able to speak it in so they can, you know, um, use that as their player's card. You know, it's like, hey, I'm here, I'm playing, you know, connect me to my account. So there, there's a real push for for that right now. And um, the technology either exists now or is being developed as we, we stand here today. Has the move to touchless devices in security changed the culture of your security department? Has it, has it made people act differently, interact differently? I, I'm not phrasing that properly, but I think you get what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, well, I think from, you know, I'll speak specifically from the, the uh, surveillance side, you know, with the cameras, the camera side. We normally, you know, have our what we call agents or investigators that are working behind the cameras and they they are looking for bad guys, if you will. I mean, they're looking for the people we know or their behaviors that, you know, stand out to us and that so we can, you know, do something about them one way or the other, uh, whether it be and ask them to leave or send security after them, whatever the case may be. Um, but um, when we started putting in some of the cameras that recognize, you know, use facial recognition, I could not believe the number of people that we missed. I mean, it, that's, it was simply that. It's like, you know, here we are, we have trained observers and they're looking for certain people to come into a space and walk around it and do different things. And they just can't keep up with the camera. The, the eye truly does never blinks. And, you know, it just picked people up, um, you know, at a level that, you know, we were just shocked, you know, of how many people that, you know, we knew, um, you know, knew we're bad guys, so to speak, um, that, you know, uh, we're on the property and we were unaware of them. So it, <laughs> it really changed the way we operate um, because of that. You know, it's like, wow, you know, this camera is going to report this. And so we're kind of, in some cases, uh, working for the camera, if that makes sense. <laughs> Very well said. Dirk Boss, yeah. speaking about touchless devices in the security industry and in the casino business. Really good stuff, Dirk. Uh, as we talked about in the beginning of the show, you know, good things always come out of bad things. That's just kind of the way it, it happens if you keep the right attitude. And I think at the end of the day, this is going to benefit society. So I really appreciate you coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. All right. Thank you, sir. Elisa Costante is Vice President of Research at Scout Technologies, Inc., the Netherlands. Elisa Costante, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Today, we're going to talk about the three cybersecurity risks to consider with your security surveillance system or your Internet of Things devices. Let's break this down first. Give us give us your outline on on the three big challenges here that we have to worry about with these physical devices. Well, there are uh, um, a big problem with these devices is understanding where they are and what they are in your network. As you as you mentioned before, is um, it's very interesting uh, uh, to call them physical devices because they are not really physical devices. I think like sometimes I have I need to work to put the word physical so that people really understand that when we speak about access control, for instance, they are the badges and 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 physical uh, doors that allow you in or out to to, to a building. So visibility is definitely one of the first challenging. And uh, the second challenging thing that you need to do about that is how do you secure them? Uh, so those those devices are typically filled with uh, uh, with vulnerabilities or sometimes not even vulnerabilities, but even misconfiguration 
uh, it's interesting because we uh, we set up like a lab in uh, in uh, in Eindhoven in um, in our cyber lab, and uh, I bought like uh, cameras and digital uh, uh, video recorder, etc. And when they come by default, the amount of protocols and activities and connections that they have is unbelievable and we are speaking of high-end cameras here right the, the the one that are really used for security surveillance not the one that are used for home um consumption uh, so uh security is definitely uh, the 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 second uh, uh, big risk assessing uh, um assessing the risk quantifying the risk and the fifth one is okay now how do you mitigate that risk what can i do around that uh, do i monitor do i actually uh, segment uh, and uh, understanding what strategy to have around those devices is uh, is the third big issue. I'm not sure I've heard anybody phrase it quite as well as you did, Elisa. This is really well said. Let's break these three down. Let's talk about visibility. Back to my earlier point, the Internet of Things has made everything part of the Internet. And when you call something physical, it's really just descriptive because there's really nothing that's not on the Internet, including your refrigerator, right? Is visibility really an issue? Are people understanding visibility now? People get that things are connected, don't they? Or perhaps we're not really always knowing that things are connected. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, it is very, very well put in the sense that uh, sometimes uh, most of the customers we speak to, when we go in and show to them all the things that are connected, especially especially from the physical world. And they are quite surprised. I will I will share with you some uh, some lessons that we we have learned from the trench. Like once we were um, giving the visibility to an organization, and we were monitoring their building automation system. So when you monitor building, you have physical things, right? Um, and uh, and we saw three hundred new IP addresses, and nobody knew what they were. And eventually, it turned out that it was uh, the toilets in the building because those toilets were actually connected to the internet so that the provider could actually understand how many flushes and and uh, uh, and uh, how well it was working in terms of uh, water consumption so you are perfectly right when you say that things need to uh, uh, like uh, making people understanding what visibility means and the extent to which that visibility can go sometimes is still a challenge and um, especially the, the, to, to your earlier point about the physical and why we need to say physical, I think sometimes it helps the conversation because if you say physical, like people sort of associate to something that can go wrong physically, right? Uh, if you speak about breaches and if you speak about data leakage, uh, like most of the people still think that security is about some data that will not touch us. The moment that you speak about cyber physical system and you tell them that actually whatever is a cyber security issue or an attack can actually damage physical things, including a car or including um, um, yeah, a camera or, or uh, a windmill, people will actually listen to you more carefully. You know what? That's an excellent point. Very well said. I would never phrase it that way. All right. Now, let's break down the next one. We're, let's talk about... The, connectiv the connectivity part. And with connectivity comes the configuration. Now, that's a big word that people don't quite understand from a cyber point of view. But basically, it means if I take my Panasonic camera out of the box, the first thing I got to do, I have to change the password from password 01 to something that's going to work. I have to make sure that it's connected to the right network, to the right computers, have the right people sharing it. The configuration part is more challenging, I think, for our physical security people because they have to get the IT guy in there to help them with this. So break this down for us and why this part is the next challenge. Yeah, because uh, uh, as um, as you, if you said, like uh, um, the, the the physical guys, the physical security guys that actually do the installation, 
most of the times they do not have uh, the knowledge about the cybersecurity issues. So what you do is you take a, a camera out of the box and you just put it. And what you, for you is working with is that camera is actually taking the streaming and sending that streaming to the network, network video recorder. I mean, you don't need more than that. If you actually wanted to go and, and a risk assessment for that camera, it doesn't lie probably the responsibility, the, 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 cyber, the physical security guys that are installing it, they probably don't feel responsible for the right configuration. They just leave, leave as it is out of the box. Now, if you go and you look what out of the box means, yes, of course, you have the default password, but you also have a default, a lot of default services that are running there that probably are not useful or needed in the vast majority of cases, but still are enabled by default. And I'm speaking of something like, uh, there is something that is called an SSD protocol or uh, a European key, so a uh, plug and play protocol. Uh, those, those protocols are very useful in the houses where you want your iPhone and you want to connect your iPhone with your camera and have everything in one place. But in many organizations, for instance, those protocols are not really necessary because you do not want everybody in your guest network to jump on those, uh, uh, on those cameras. So for instance, disabling that might be a good procedure. Uh, so it's, um, it's a matter of basically, probably different responsibilities that fall on different stakeholders and uh, and there is not quite the understanding that whenever you put a physical uh, device into your network that also has an internet connection you're actually expanding the risk posture of that network as a whole unless you have like a proper segmentation and uh, uh, and proper policies in place all right let's talk about the third part let's talk about mitigation and security now this is a tricky part because once you connect your device to the internet, you have all kinds of other people that have access to that if you don't set this up properly. You have third-party risk, all kinds of parts here. So break this down for us and tell us how we can get a handle on this. Yes, definitely. So it's, um, it's a matter of, uh, of, of ownership, right? As you say, like sometimes those cameras, for instance, I don't know if you're familiar with the Verkada case in which like some hackers managed to get uh, access to the streaming of several cameras, like thousands of cameras, because like the model was that those cameras were installed at the organization, but then the streaming were given to the cloud in such a way that the service provider actually could provide not only the cameras and the physical security in terms of physical appliances, uh, but also the, the monitoring as a service, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, and this is a, a, a perfect example on the fact that sometimes when you outsource certain services to third party and you lose visibility into into what part of your data they get access to and into what kind of data they uh, they can stream and send out of your organization you basically are introducing a new um, a new risk and uh, and the way to mitigate this risk actually the first way is the visibility that we touched upon before because if you know where this camera is and are and to what other location the streaming for instance is sent to and if you know on what which other uh, devices on your network that camera can speak with uh, then you can have a best uh, a better understanding of the risk that those physical security uh, elements are bringing to your network and uh, and then you can go to the step of mitigation because like you assess your risk you know for instance that uh, uh, this camera is sending data outsourced to the, the cloud and maybe at the same time it's also on the same con on the same uh, network of your medical devices and if this is the case what you want to do for instance is to apply a segmentation to make sure that only the cameras are on a separate network which is only with the other cameras and the other system in the place and have no access to whatever other, other part of the network another thing that you want to put in uh, uh, in place maybe is uh, is a zero trust 
you do not wonder those cameras just because they are on the network, those cameras as well as any other IoT that is not, you know, uh, accepted, authenticated and, uh, and show some uh, level of trust cannot be um, accepted to, to actually access the network. Uh, other mitigation actually in um, can include control. So you make sure that if there are uh, certain policies that are uh, not met or that are met, for instance, like there is communication that is unwanted or uh, the, la the latest patch has not been um, uh, uploaded to a device, then you do not allow communication to that device at all. So all of those things need to be taken into account. Uh, a specific strategy needs to be created and make sure that based, you know, on the risk posture of every organization, and that risk posture is different from organization to organization, after that is assessed, you actually put in place the control and the mitigation that are best suited for that specific organization. Alisa, I'd like to talk about the why. We've talked <laughs> about the how and what's happening here, but let's let's try and give our, our listeners some some ideas on why this happens. I think, personally, it's just a matter of vernacular. In other words, I'm a physical security guy, and I've learned what a physical camera is, and I plug it in. And you know what? I don't need to worry about the IT stuff or connectivity or anything like that. I have an IT guy for that. I don't think that's correct. I think the physical security guy needs to learn the language of the IT world to understand how serious this is. And to your point, you found toilets connected to the internet that nobody knew about, right? I mean, this is an important thing from a security director point of view to have a firm understanding of. Give me your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think you're completely right. It's, uh, sometimes, most of the time, it's, uh, it's a problem of uh, uh, of lack lack of knowledge and uh, even having like awareness about what the implications are of a misconfiguration. Maybe might um, might make the, the the physical security guys willing to make one or two questions more to the IT guys. And then you are touching upon also another very important issue, which is organizational people related. Most like a lot of times, cybersecurity issues are actually related to how people are organized. Uh, and th there is a concept which is called the IoT OT. IT convergence, which basically means that uh, uh, there is the need for multiple systems to actually be connected. Because maybe you want to understand, uh, especially if you are, I don't know, a retailer, for instance, uh, uh, information coming from your camera can actually contain a lot of valuable business uh, data. And then you want to connect that information to your business uh, uh, information system. And all of a sudden, like the risk exposure of those cameras, if they are unpatched, for instance, they become like a business risk. It's not only um, not only like a, a separate island as it was before. So yes, you are right. Like uh, uh, the people that install those cameras need to have more awareness. But as well, organization especially need to make sure uh, that there is um, uh, there is certain control around uh, um, around uh, those devices and whatever like the doors are opened to allow interconnection and uh, and to support um, let's say convergence of the information things are done properly like they not uh, opening only firewall do firewall uh, doors and uh, and um, and forget about them and not take like a camera with all the configuration as it comes but uh, make sure of uh, of doing the, the right assessment as, as we mentioned before alisa Costanti, she's the vice president of research for four scout technologies inc Ms. Elisa, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. It was really, really interesting. And I hope people took away uh, information they can use on this. It's so, it's so important to understand the Internet of Things. Thank you so much, Chuck, for having me. This was a pleasure.